0: Wessex LMC's supporting you and your practice.
1: So this is a a sort of flexible agenda. So we are going to talk a bit about um, general COVID, um, hopefully if Matt joins us soon, about the COVID oximetry at home. Laura's going to give us a really quick update on cremation, death certification, notification of death. Michelle's going to give a quick update on flu vaccination. We'll talk about COVID vaccination. And then at the end of the meeting, Saul Faust, who's joined one of our meetings before, who's leading the Oxford trial for AstraZeneca in Southampton is gonna join us to talk a bit about where we are with uh, the COVID vaccination from a a scientific point of view. So just quickly, a sort of overview. Um, We, as you know, we're all in tier two, which is the high alert apart from the Isle of Wight, which is tier one. Um, If you look at um, the increases we saw in wave one um, and the numbers that tested positive, these were mainly symptomatic patients where now we're testing a lot more people and asymptomatic patients. So it's not surprising that we're seeing bigger numbers than in wave uh, one. If you look across the patch, it is slightly variable. We've got some hotspots and some which are better, but over the last week across the whole of our patch, The figures of numbers with COVID have fallen by somewhere between 30 and 50%, depending on where you are. And one or two people have uh, rather bravely said we're over the peak of wave two. I think personally, that's probably a bit early to to say. Uh, And we don't seem to have been hit quite as hard as the north of England. And one of the reasons public health say about that is that um, our death rate is lower and even our admissions to hospital and ITU is lower. It doesn't appear that this locally has affected the elderly as much as it has in the north of the country. Um, We've obviously established a COVID oximetry at home, which um, Caroline and Karen are going to talk about briefly in a minute. And then the other big news is the first COVID vaccine uh, has now been licensed, which has massive implications. So, Matt, are you on the call?
2: Yep, I'm here.
1: All right. Would you like to give us a sort of quick update from your point of view about the sort of clinical bits that we're seeing with COVID?
2: Okay. Thank you. Um, So essentially, we've created this kind of strategy for what we are seeing with COVID, which is essentially rapid cycles of change, iterative learning, and adaptation as evidence comes to light, as safety concerns arise, and as gaps in our pathways um, um, come to bear. It's a bit like painting the fourth bridge. You get to the end, then you have to start again. And all these elements of safety, testing, alignment, inequalities, escalation um, criteria, inclusion criteria, the onboarding itself, end of life, learning disabilities, monitoring regimes, all fit into this, as well as heavy hitting papers that are coming thick and fast. So we formed this national pathways group to try and address things in an adaptive way, in a learning and an iterative way going forward to figure out three main things. What needs fixing? What's the priority and how urgently do we need to do it? And is this based on safety or evidence or anecdote? Um, And then coming up with consensus collaborative solutions, securing the knowledge that when we come up with a solution, we're gonna come up with more questions. So an interesting prospect and very much founded around the design principles of quality improvement and adaptive change. So a flexible dynamic workforce with rapid cycles of task and finish groups. Um, Recent evidence that's come to light apart from our Groundbreaking regional uh, evidence about low oxygen levels and how significantly they influence mortality um, includes, um, I guess, what we know about the importance of oxygen measurement married to early admission. Paper published at the weekend definitely proves that healthcare workers present late. It's not really rocket science, is it? But the um, odds ratio and hazard ratio of a healthcare professional presenting late is about five times the hazard ratio compared to um, normal people who don't work in healthcare. Add to that BAME background who present late, obesity who present late as well, and obviously learning disabilities. Um, Our future safety netting is almost through top of the office, and it will look like that 92% 92% or below, you come in straight away. If it's sustained um, and you you get there by your own means within an hour, Or you call 999? 93 to 94% is a phone call to 111 pretty much. And you are probably gonna be coming in if it's a sustained level of hypoxia. 95 to, to 100 is the safe range or relatively safe range per se. We, we have progressed the ambulance guidance with the great help of people at SCAS and other um, ambulance services. This is a draft of where we've got to in terms of that assessment. It follows the same lines and the sand as we've used in primary care and hospitals as well, um, and is really clear. And um, they're, they're an amazing group. Um, paramedics and ambulance medical directors, because they really do see the pragmatic elements and what is usable. And uh, you know, we probably need to apply the logic model of this and the clarity of this to what we've put into general practice, care homes, and the hospitals in due course. So this is work in progress, but we've almost got it aligned and agreed. Um, in terms of what I just said, in terms of as soon as you sort one pathway out, you realise there are a whole bunch of other questions that arise. Um, the the question about how we onboard, refer patients to COVID oximetry at home who are kept at home from the urgent care pathway has arisen time and time again. And so if you're in the back of an ambulance and you decide not to bring someone in, actually, that's a lot of work, isn't it, in terms of making sure an at-risk patient is potentially referred and onboarded to their, via their general practitioner, via whatever COVID oximetry service there is, particularly when it happens outside of the nine to five Monday to Friday hours. So it is up to us to really think about what we need to provide as a referral mechanism for both testing and also onboarding and referring patients who are non-conveyed and how we manage them. Because if we look at the data from SCAS up the 1,080 COVID-confirmed cases from our study, we realize that nearly 650 of them have normal oxygen saturations. Not all of them we could have kept at home because they may have been sick for other reasons, but actually that's a low mortality group who we probably brought in to an extent just in case. So the question is if we can impact that and actually have a reliable mechanism for referral onboarding and testing, we might be able to significantly improve our performance across the urgent care pathway and also the flow therein. This is a big risk, not just for our region, but nationally. I've put it on the risk register nationally, but it's something we need to think about in our region as well. How does this work 24 seven for all patients and across all silos? Further work has happened since we last met around the palliative care pathway and about when that is enacted and what drugs we are comfortable giving in the out-of-hours time period and for patients who are not suitable for escalation. The guidelines group are going to pronounce on that within the next week, um, where it will be signed off as clinical guidance. Um, It will contain reference points to when we should use dexamethasone, when we should consider using emergency home oxygen and how we should coordinate that, and um, low molecular weight heparin as well. And certainly that's an important consideration in the light of the recent NICE guidance that suggests on discharge from hospital, patients should be given low molecular weight heparin for the following seven days in their home environment or oral anticoagulation equivalents. So that is in the pipeline as well and should come out pretty rapidly. Um, And then finally, just to end on learning disabilities who, who have published this really hard-hitting report into 206 deaths of patients with learning disabilities through COVID. And what the the findings were really important. This is clearly a group that has had inequalities um, in healthcare leveled at them for the whole of time. But the question is what we do about this right now. So we know that a good proportion of actually living either at home or within supported living, not all of them live within nursing or residential homes. Downs is heavily represented in the groups that died as are patients with autism generally, but not all of them had at least one health long-term health condition. Most of it mobility impairment or respiratory conditions. Um, they don't present the classic symptoms the way non-LED presents. So more often than not, tiredness was a massive um, recognized symptom. Um, on the, although some of them had cough, fever, and shortness of breath as well, none of them reported loss of taste or smell which may have been for communication difficulties, but it's something we need to bear in mind. The other thing we need to bear in mind is the age groups. So whereas we know that 65 plus appears to be the most vulnerable group for COVID deaths, in learning disabilities, it was across the board, um, particularly younger patients as well. And that's really led to us thinking, actually, the inclusion criteria needs to be anyone with a learning disability who's an adult, including Downs. So that will be the national guidance that will come out pretty soon um, in terms of inclusion criteria for covid oximetry at home. Um, The other recommendations were to form a deterioration tool for carers to really pay attention across the system to concerns from carers and families, to implement the soft signs of deterioration tools um, that we already use actually in a lot of areas, such as Restore2 um, in our region um, and do that pretty quickly. Pulse exhibitors access for for carers is really important. The development of e-learning resources, which we've almost finished and should be finalized this week for national release. Um, and in the medium term, develop an all cause learning disabilities deterioration pathway. And that will be held hopefully by the AHSNs going forward if we can find the funding. So that's a bit of a whistle stop tour in, I suppose, what's happening in terms of um, the national clinical side.
1: That's fantastic, Mac. Thank, thanks very much. Um, can I ask Karen, um, would you like to give a, an update sort of nationally from the pulse oximetry and your role in the region?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Nigel. Um, nothing so interesting as Matt, um, but uh, I will say that a variety of different models are being mobilised um, around the region um, and um, there will be further evaluation ongoing and we are really welcome any sites to take part um, with those research projects. Um, we are also looking at um, patient and, um, and staff feedback from, uh, from each of those initiatives. So, um, that that's um uh, ongoing and there's um uh, and, and also just i mean having to set up the um the the program in Dorset being really clear about the fact that these are going to be models that have to be really flexible in terms of standing up and, and stepping down as we go through waves of um, increased infection and then decreased infection as well. So it's got to be a really flexible um, way of working. I would encourage everyone to share case studies because I think all of the learning from those case studies is really important. And that's how we will kind of get more and more people really comfortable with, um, with you know, with using the service. Um, the learning networks are a great source of uh, information, Matt, Matt and his team run them every couple of weeks. I think we have advertised them already um, through this webinar, but we'll, um, we'll send the link again because if you just want to hop on and hear what others are doing, um, I think they're, they're a great source of information and would encourage everyone, um, to, particularly if you're running um, a COVID um, Oximetry at Home um, programme, to, to get to be part of that learning environment. Um, Nationally, we're looking to to try and um, pull through a daily list um, of COVID positive cases um, that are coming through Pillar 2 to try and save you doing the the searches. Um, The first um, drop of those is going to likely come with a sort of the last seven days um, and then from there from there on in, it'll just be um, a daily drop into into GP um, practices. So that's just to try and make it a, a bit easier for you. Um, so expect that to come. I would think in the next couple of weeks. Um, SNOMED codes have now been agreed for, um, and that will really really help us with the evaluation. TPP, um, I believe, have already um, released those codes, um, and it will come now. Um, uh, gradually as uh, the other um, GP suppliers will be taking those through as they as they um, run their as they run their their routine changes, but TPP have definitely already got them. and then just finally um it's been agreed that there'll be some um funding it's a small amount of funding, but it's funding nonetheless for each CCG to help support clinical leadership for um these programs. so um it's it's just a sum of money per CCG of the order, I think, of around 10,000, just to help support um, the the clinical leads who are taking part in driving the processes forward. So I think that's it in a nutshell, Matt Um, Matt and Nigel, thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Karen. Um, My understanding is that the COVID Oximetry at Home is now available across all uh, four STP ICSs, so it's available in BSW, in Dorset, across the whole of Hampshire and the Isle of Wire and in the Friendly system. Um, I know one or two people have put some questions in the box about where is it in BSW, it is being rolled out. Gareth may want to come back to that in a minute. Yes. Can I answer that, Nigel? Yeah, go on. Um, do. It, it's still in its soft launch phase. So it launched in, in
3: Baines yesterday. There are currently nine patients in that, that part of it and they're finalising the pathways with the three acutes and there'll be information out very, very shortly um, across this wider system.
1: OK, thanks, Gareth. Um, can I then come to Caroline, who um, is a GP in uh, the North Hampshire, who was heavily involved in setting up the um, co- what was called then the COVID virtual ward, um, working with other local practices and with Matt. Um, and then, obviously, with the level of COVID decreased, and then with our second wave, they stood up their service very quickly. So they've had quite a lot of experience with managing these patients with silent hypoxia. So Caroline, would you like to give us a, a, an overview of what's happened uh, in your um, COVID oximetry um, service?
4: Yeah, thank you, Nigel. Um, uh, do you can go to the next slide, please, Giselle? Thank you. So we're in week five of our virtual ward now, and this covers a, a population of 230,000 across North Hampshire, that's, that's six PCNs together. So I said I'd just start to give some, some quick feedback Interestingly, as you can see from the graph at the bottom, we had a bit of a spike in week two. Then it seemed to quieten down for a couple of weeks, but actually, interestingly, we're having quite a busy week of, of admissions at the moment. In total, we've onboarded 43 across that population. Um, we've got 19 active as of today and, and discharged 24. Um, so we wanted to just have a look at, at, at what that looked like for those tw- first 24 that had gone all the way through the system. Um, I, I think, as Karen says, the, the, the real... Um, sort of challenge, I suppose, with this is is needing to remain agile because we're having to to change things almost daily um, to make sure that that as we learn more about it, we're we're able to to keep up and provide the best service. Um, Things we've overcome that are going well, um, we identified pretty quickly that in order to get point of care testing and have that working well, we needed a dedicated HCA. Um, They're now on site, our our virtual wards co-located with a a hot hub covering the same population. And we also recognised we needed a pretty robust reception team, Um, and uh, we learned that lesson pretty fast. Um, Again, as Karen mentioned, the real focus on how we get our housebound patients to access the service. Um, Locally, we have a SCAS home visiting team, and actually, as of two days ago, they're now able to do some swabbing at home, and they carry packs so they can admit people directly from a home visit onto uh, onto the virtual ward. We're trying to do the same in our learning disability homes for all the reason that, 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 that Matt's already talked about. Uh, and our palliative care pathways went, went live this week with regular huddles with the palliative care teams going through the patients on, on the virtual ward. Um, Karen's already alluded a bit to, to pillar two testing. I think the things that are working well, um, the IT is actually working well. Patients are really comfortable. Um, we're currently using Acurix, although there is a, a new system in the, in the pipeline for that. And, and the use of care coordinators, we've got a fantastic care coordinator who's supporting our virtual ward and having the ability to, to access care coordinators through the additional role scheme and then use them for this um, is it's proving really popular. In and out of ours, we're interfacing well with NHAC and by the use of a shared team spreadsheet, that, that is essentially seamless. It doesn't need any form of handover. Everyone's got access to the same information. And as I said, we are using the 15 minute lateral flow tests, um, which allows us to identify patients who are COVID positive whilst we're seeing them so that we can enter them directly onto the virtual ward. Um, Next slide please, Dazelle. So this was just a real quick and dirty review of our first 20 patients who came through the service. As much as anything to be able to, to tell the story for those of you who are just in the process of setting up the service. Um, the majority of patients, uh, not not surprisingly, are going to be in the green categories. But I think that the story it tells, and when you dig down to an individual patient level, is those people who did deteriorate, sat, dropped their saturations, ended up being admitted to hospital. Um, they tell really good stories that actually at that point they were still feeling well um, and they wouldn't have gone into hospital probably for another few days and they actually started to symptomatically feel unwell 24, or 48 hours later. So for me, that, that, that's quite a powerful tale that, that these pulse oximeters really are allowing people to go into hospital before they become so unwell that, 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 um, that they may require more intervention. Um, thanks, Giselle, and the next one. And finally, this was just some patient feedback that I wanted to share with you. Again, this is really early days. We're only in week five, but we are doing patient surveys already. We're 100% on whether patients are finding it helpful, knew when to seek help, and none of them had any difficulties using the pulse oximeter which was reassuring and none of them had any difficulties with the IT. So I think at this stage some lovely feedback and, um, and, and I can certainly keep feeding back how we're getting on but, but so far so good. Thanks Nigel.
1: Thanks Caroline. Um, can we go to the next slide please? Laura, would you like to give us a quick update on death certification?
5: Hi, there's not much to update really. It's, um, so I'm Laura Edwards, one of the medical directors. Um, It's just to remind people that the um, COVID regulations and the COVID legislation that came in in April is still current. Um, So there are significant flexibilities now um, that did not previously exist. So if you aren't familiar with those, um, then it's just to remind you that we have um, an excellent detailed Word document for those of you who like reading things and for those whose brains work differently. There is a flow chart that you can work through to see whether you're in a position to be able to issue. Um, a death certificate and also um, what you're supposed to write on the cremation form as well underneath the current legislation, what's acceptable. So just to highlight that for you, they're easily findable through Google. Um, if you just put in the cheerful combination of death and Wessex LMC's, then um, it will come up uh, COVID-19 uh, and uh, that will take you to the page that has both of those documents on there. Also just to remind you that the sudden unexpected death protocol um, is, is still in place across Hampshire. Um, so just to remind you, we have, um, uh, we have resources about that and information about that on our website. So if that happens to you and you're feeling uncertain of what to do, um, then please do just have a look there um, because that came in a year ago, but I know it doesn't happen that frequently to us. So information there, but essentially, do you know the cause of death is the key question for both under the emergency COVID legislation and for that protocol. Thank
1: you. Thank you very much, Laura. Uh, next slide, please. Um, I'm going to ask Michelle to just give us a quick update on flu vaccination, the key headlines.
6: Thanks, Nigel. So it was really just to highlight the um, couple of documents that we've got as screenshots on here. So um, helpfully, the 50 to 64 year old cohort information was released just under two weeks ago. Um, and we were inundated with queries from practices. Unfortunately, um, practices were not informed, this information was was going out and I believe public health weren't either. So we've produced uh, an FAQ document, which has a wealth of information I'm gonna give you a bit of a whistle-stop tour of uh, shortly. Uh, We've got a PM webinar on the 25th of November that was recorded and focused on uh, 50 to 64 year olds, and it may be worth having a listen to that. And then finally, we've got the flu code and we're getting quite a lot of queries uh, from practices, particularly relating to the non-clinical at-risk groups of what needs to be recorded. Um, And we've worked with South East Public Health Team to produce uh, some information. They've produced quite a um, a useful document, which we've just done an overview for, which is all of this is available on our website. Next slide, please. So some of the questions that we've been getting from practices um, I've highlighted here, as I said, the FAQ document has all of this information and more. So it's worth having a look at that. So vaccines for the different, different eligible cohorts. So we've had this query in from a number of practices. So here just provides a summary of those. So 50 to 64 Practice can use the new vaccine that's been li- uh, temporarily licensed, which is a flu block, or you can use QIVC or QIVE if, uh, if they're not needed for the at-risk. Under 65s, uh, QIVC, QIVE, and QIVR, and then the over 65s, the ATIV. Just really just wanted to pick up on the flu block. So this is the new vaccine that's been temporarily licensed. The PGD has been released um, and is available on our website you do need to order needles, the vaccine doesn't come with those. And you can order these on the PCSE online, there is no charge to practices. And there are two needles that uh, are needed, which are identified in the PGD, um, what you need to order. The um, question that we've received the most is that the flu block uh, apparently was a black triangle drug. Well, actually, this is—it's it, that's not correct. They Because it's temporarily been licensed, um, it's not a black triangle drug. So HCAs can uh, give this Uh, to patients as long as there's a PSD in place, but we would recommend that the prescriber make sure they're familiar with the PGD for this particular vaccine due to some of the indications for it before you sign the PSD. There is a consenting process that's needed for these patients um, and specific information that you need to provide to them. Um, And what we would suggest is that information will be in the patient leaflet, which we've put a link there on on our slides. But you, it, you need to make sure that that information is shared. You can either do that in a poster in your waiting area while they're waiting for their vaccines, or some practice, I believe, are texting out for the patients to review their website with that information on. Patients um, who become 50 by the 31st of March 2021 can have the flu vaccine. And also, you can vaccinate staff with, with the central stock that you're ordering. Uh, if they've missed it, maybe they've been on maternity leave or or off sick. They are able to. You are able to vaccinate them with that stock. Um, just to highlight that within the DES practices are um, able and part of the eligible cohorts are the so health and social care staff, so care home workers, carers, um, managed hospices staff. So there's a number of um, cohorts that you can provide the vaccination for. And we would encourage you to because they're obviously looking after the most vulnerable uh, patients. And if you have a surplus of QIVC, QIVE or ATIV that you've ordered from your own stock, you are able to share these with other practices or pharmacies if you so wish. The NHRA have relaxed the rules and you can um, seek reimbursement from those practices if you share your vaccines. And then uh, we've had quite a a few queries on patients uh, waiting after vaccines. So JCVI have issued guidance in relation, but this is only to drive-throughs that patients need to wait 15 minutes before. We haven't had any other guidance. I don't believe, Nigel, have we around um,
1: practices? They don't need to
6: wait otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. And then finally, um, learning disability and uh, needle phobia. So it's just to make practices aware that if you've got patients who have a needle phobia with learning disabilities, you are able to give the nasal flu um, under a PSD. And
1: that's it. Thank you very much. A lot of information there. Very, very good. Right. Next slide, please. Right. Can we, um, if we go through um, a bit about the COVID vaccination program. So um, as you all know, yesterday, the COVID um, vaccine produced by Pfizer was licensed. Information has been released. Um, it has substantially Um, change the vaccination program, which is um, being developed in in each area. So if I just go through um, in headline terms, so um, the enhanced service for the primary care bit. So remember there are four streams of this. So there's the hospital trusts who will be getting the Pfizer vaccine first. So there's one in each um, county who will start off the vaccinations, then quickly the other hospitals will come on board to vaccinate their staff. Um, And last night they announced that that would include people who are over 80 who were attending outpatients. It is still very unclear as to quite how that's gonna work in practice. And immediately after this, I'm going on to another call to try and um, resolve how we're gonna do that. Um, The large vaccination centers, which used to be called the mass vaccination centers are ready to go in most of our areas. Once the vaccine starts coming in any volumes, And of course there's then general practice. General practice is being asked to sign an enhanced service contract and you've got till just before midnight next Monday to sign. Um, There needs to be a designated site which um, every bit of uh, our patch is covered by a designated site and I think um, they are all either approved or very close to being approved with some changes over the last 24 hours. There's got to be a collaborative agreement in place. This is across Practices working together. There's a template which will become available. That's not available yet, and you'll need to sign that before the vaccination gets started. And that covers a number of things about record sharing, stock control, communicating with patients, financial arrangements, etc. It's important to to reiterate the reason that there, this isn't going to every single site is because to get a site up and running, not only logistically, you've got to get the vaccine delivered. So if we are going to get the Pfizer one, and that's not certain yet, but it may be that we are going to get the Pfizer one uh, to deliver the volumes we need, but you're also going to need to have a scanner to barcode scan the vials that uh, of the vaccine. So there is a stock control, but also reporting to MRHSA um, and a number of other requirements, but we do expect that more sites will become available later on in the programme. So there's information sharing and the timing of clinics, just to reiterate, you don't have to be open eight to eight, seven days a week. It is literally to uh, focus on the delivery of the vaccines, the shelf life and the numbers you needed to vaccinate. So that will determine how you run your clinics and how long you need to be open for. And obviously there is a security issue with the vaccine because these will have a significant street value. Next slide, please. So You'll get 10 days notice of the commencement of vaccination um, when you're asked to go. Uh, So if you sign up by next Monday and then you get 10 days, the the possibility is that we will start vaccinating in primary care before Christmas, but it may not be in the next couple of weeks uh, by the time we've got everything in place. So you can vaccinate your registered patients plus patients who aren't registered with you so long as they're in the defined cohort at that point in time. So you'll be told, right, now you can do the over-80s, now you can do the over-75s. And uh, once they're in that group, then you can vaccinate your patients or if patients from other practices come to you, it will be recorded, but you'll need to work out how the funding flows between practices. You'll also be able to vaccinate um, care home workers and uh, your primary care medical staff. You will need to consent people and there's still... Um, questions being asked about the consent process we are expecting a national consent model which will have a pre and post consent information um, and a detailed consent um, document so we've got to reduce to a minimum the amount of face-to-face time we need to spend discussing it with patients but clearly they need to be informed consent not just walking through. They need to complete the course with the same vaccine wherever possible. So if you have Pfizer in the first one, you need Pfizer in the second. But if there is no vaccine available, then you can use a different type. And there should be a seven day gap between um, a flu vaccination and a COVID vaccination. But this is there's no evidence in this, it's a pragmatic advice. But if you see somebody within that gap and you think it's um, clinically appropriate to give the vaccine, uh, then you should do so. Next slide, please. Um, Lots of questions about who can uh, administer the vaccine. Well, clearly, healthcare professionals who are trained to do so, so your doctors, nurses can do, and HCAs, I'll come on to the HCAs. But anybody involved in this programme is going to need to do some online learning, and that's just so that they understand the characteristics of the vaccine and there is online learning. And this slide deck will be made available on the LMC website, and you can click on these links. But there will be some more definitive information coming out, about the online training uh, that you will need. Uh, This is for people in your practice, so uh, there will be some need for um, anaphylaxis training and basic life support training um, if they haven't done that in the last 12 months. Uh, There will also be some additional vaccine uh, training for those healthcare professionals who haven't been involved in various aspects. Also, in terms of non-healthcare professionals, then they can... So non-healthcare professionals, so your HCAs can prepare and administer a vaccine if they're supervised by a healthcare professional and they've completed the appropriate training. Uh, Next slide, please. Um, You'll know that the payment for a completed course is £25.16 and you will be paid for unregistered um, patients, um, but this will be to a nominated practice and then through the um, collaboration agreement, it'll work out. Um, how that uh, funding will flow and there is some concern from actors about cash flow and if you do feel that's a problem then please discuss it with your CCG. There is a bit in the enhanced service which talks about that um, but it's not clear um, quite what will happen as a result of it but if you do think you're going to be sufficiently financially pressured then please do that. Um, In terms of CQC um, you just have to as, as you if you use a different site then you may need to put something on your notices, but if you go into um, the link, it will talk about flu vaccination and the same goes for COVID vaccination. Next slide, please. So if you look at the programme, which is evolving and changing all the time, so as I said, we're going to look first of all to go to hospital trusts, then to vaccination centres, and then um, general practice. What happened last night in the Prime Minister's um, uh, newscast um, press release or press conference was that it, it was about the care home staff and the 80 year olds being vaccinated in hospitals. Now, there seems to be a challenge with that if you've got a hospital site which has got high COVID levels taking people to that site to be vaccinated. And that's what we're all trying to clarify at the moment if we know what vaccine we're gonna get, what the characteristics of the vaccine are. So we all know the Pfizer vaccine does have some challenges to it, but um, if those vac- if the challenges can be overcome and the AstraZeneca vaccine isn't gonna come for some time, then we may need to focus early stages on um, the more vulnerable, if we can transport the vaccine to them or transport them to the vaccine safely. And in a minute, I'm gonna hand over to Saul Faust who um, is much more of an expert at this than I am. Um, Next slide, please. So um, we'll vaccinate the at-risk groups as according to the schedule by the joint vaccination immunization. So our aim would be to um, vaccinate the at-risk groups similar to the flu vaccination in primary and community care and we're looking for the younger, fitter patients to go to the larger vaccination centres, or some may come to you anyway. Um, People will be able to choose when they go to the larger or the local vaccination centre. Next slide, please. So there's a lot of questions, who can be a vaccinator? Well, you've got experienced vaccinators and those who can be trained to it. And we are looking for the, um, uh, the workforce bureaus in each area, for volunteers to go to, they will then be DBS checked, trained and be made available to general practice, both as vaccinators and other people to help you. Next slide, please. Um, Just a bit quickly about technology. Um, Pinnacle is what's been decided that we're gonna use to record the vaccines to start with. And this is because our clinical systems aren't um, compliant with what is needed to to happen. We'll be recording the date the vaccine happens, what you're going to uh, administer, um, the barcoding scanning will do the stock control and feed some information. Um, Later on, TPP and um, EMIS may be compliant. And I've had some discussions with AccuRx who want to um, have a system up and running, both for doing the bookings but also um, recording of the vaccinations but at the moment um, they aren't able to do this so to start with we'll all have to use Pinnacle. There is a local booking system which you will use, Um, practices do it with their flu vaccination and there will be a national booking system. More information will come out early next week on how the bookings will happen but essentially we are trying to get some comms out to say to patients please don't contact your practice you will be told when you're in the at-risk group. Next slide please. Um, There's a list of training requirements, so um, if you haven't done BLS, you need to do so, Um, and uh, I'll I'll make this slide deck available, and you can click on those various links which will uh, enable you to get to some of those training modules. Next slide, please. Um, Again, if you look at the resuscitation, it is worth if any of your staff haven't uh, had training in the last year then to do so. And also there is some very specific training which relates to COVID, which the LMC is putting on, but also the college has got a a, uh, e-learning for health, which um, covers the uh, resuscitation to do with COVID as there is in e-learning for health from the e-learning library. Um, Can I now um, introduce Saul who kindly came to one of our previous meetings, who as I said is um, leading the Oxford the Southampton arm of the Oxford trial who knows lots about the AstraZeneca vaccine but also knows lots about uh, vaccines in general and the Covid vaccine story altogether. Um, so I'll hand over to you Saul to give us an update.
3: So I'm not going to run through all of these slides I'm just going to pick out ones Nigel that you and I have um, talked about. We discussed as you said a couple of weeks ago uh, we didn't use the slide set but we went through all the issues didn't we? But, we did. Um, Just to remind people, you know, that the vaccine trials are, are really been looking at the safety and the immunogenicity and the data for all of them up till now is not going to be the definitive data set. So even though the MHRA have approved the Pfizer vaccine, we only know what we know because the studies have been going on for six months, seven months, and the data sets that the MHRA have looked at are relating to a minimum of two months after the second vaccination dose. So... Um, this is the, if you like, the figures that are being bounded about, and we'll look at a, look at them in, in a few minutes. Are the best immun best the, the company are going to achieve? Um, so 95 percent sounds an awful lot for a vaccine trial, and it, and it is. It's fantastic news that the vaccines can protect against COVID. But this is the point where the the immune the immune response, the antibody levels will be at their highest before they decline. So we would expect the efficacy data that we're seeing right now to be the best possible. And that, that's, fi- that's fine. Um, it, it might go down over time though, uh, over the, the whole course of the, 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 the studies. So um, we don't know how long protection is gonna last and we don't know where the boosters are gonna be needed. And we don't know how technologies and the vaccines are gonna be best combined. And that is gonna give us a problem for people who are on trials at the moment not a problem we can't solve, it just means we're going to have to answer questions individually for those quite a lot of healthcare professionals who are on clinical trials and will need individual advice per trial. So um, I'm not going to go through all the different vaccines. The four we talked about before the UK have bought are the RNA vaccines, the, the adenoviral vector vaccines that can't reproduce in the body, so the Oxford and the Janssen vaccines, Novavax is the spike protein vaccine and Valneva is the one for the UK that's an inactivated vaccine. They all work in slightly different ways, but they all target the spike protein, which is the basis of the advice from, from Public Health England and JCVI about people who've received incomplete immunisation and receiving a second dose of spike protein vaccine. So that's where that, that, those paragraphs in the Green Book are coming from. We'll come back to that. So the key the key discussion point in the media at the moment and between all our colleagues as health professionals in hospitals, as well as GP groups is, well, how can we be sure RNA vaccines are safe? And the answer to that is um, because none of the regulatory processes have been cut. The trials are way bigger than most new vaccines. It's just that everything's been done in parallel. And it's been done very quickly over the last 10 months rather than over 10 years. But we've studied more people now to to license the Pfizer vaccine and then the Moderna vaccine and then the Oxford vaccine. Actually, probably more participants than would be normally uh, studied for a new, new vaccine. RNA vaccines are new technology. It's right to say that they've never been licensed before, but they've been studied for a very long time, particularly... For use as cancer, anti-cancer vaccines and, and new new things. The, the issues that people are anxious about, or the, the reason why people are working in the vaccine field were anxious about RNA vaccines, was because in previous incarnations they've had immediate side effects at the point of injection. And nobody'd really cracked how to get the vaccine into a muscle cell, the RNA into a muscle cell and let the RNA message do its stuff without causing what were before quite nasty local reactions. But now the data's out and the MHRA have looked at it. And we believe that Moderna are gonna have the similar data set. There is no anxiety about RNA vaccines being somehow different from other vaccine technologies. All vaccines are gonna have side effects. They're all gonna give us fever. They might give some people fatigue. They might give you a headache. These are all in the small print in the data insert, but we're not worrying about the technology anymore, um, because we know that over seventy thousand people, over half, well, thirty-five thousand people without the placebo, uh, have now received RNA vaccines into their muscle, and they've not had any serious, I mean, they're serious problems with side effects due to the to the immediate reactions. So. Is, is RNA safe? Well, of course it is. In any one cell of our bodies at the moment, we've got 5,000 messages of RNA, and they disappear very quickly. They're, they're programmed to just disappear like a Snapchat message or a post-it note you throw away, and they cannot become a permanent part of your body. They, it's impossible. We don't have RNA transcriptases, and't then we can't incorporate RNA backwards into our genetic material. So the vaccines themselves are one single coronavirus protein message in in a lipid nanoparticle that's been formulated and and can be given into muscle to release that message to make spike protein to generate the immune response. And then the RNA is gone and the spike protein is dealt with by the immune system. And you can't make make coronavirus um, with, with one protein. You need 25 different proteins to make a coronavirus. So we're pretty confident now that the RNA vaccines are gonna be brilliant technology for now and the future. What we can't answer is whether they uh, give a a prolonged sustainable immune response that can be boosted or combined with other uh, vaccine technologies, because it is just the single spike protein that's generating the immunity, not an adjuvant and not a viral vector that also can stimulate the T and B cell parts of the immune system. These data are not known yet. I'm sure Pfizer and Moderna are studying them, um, but they're not in the public domain and they won't be in the initial paper, uh, not to a greater extent with that long long, longevity data. So can we reassure ourselves and colleagues that these vaccines are safe and effective? We can absolutely um, say that they're as safe as any vaccine we use for anything else, and they're effective in the immediate period after vaccination to prevent and stop people getting COVID and serious COVID disease. And in none of the trials that have reported so far, um, RNA or the Oxford trial, nobody's ended up in hospital with COVID who has had a vaccine, which is brilliant news, because it means that even if the vaccines don't stop transmission, and that's a question that's still out there to be answered, um, these vaccines will stop people dying of COVID or even getting into hospital with severe COVID disease. So in terms of the pipeline, you'll have heard that we've uh, the UK bought 40 million doses of Pfizer and 100 million of AstraZeneca and 5 or 6 million now of Moderna. But the, the, the vaccine supply is going to take time to come through. Moderna are a new company, they haven't got a big pharma partner, it's going to take them time to do global vaccine supply. Pfizer are global experts in cold chain management and they're the largest pharmaceutical company in the world. So they know that they can deliver the vaccine doses and they they think they, they can deliver um, uh, a decent number of 40 or 50 million globally before the end of this year and, and, and 1.5 or something, 1.3 billion by the end of next year. A complicated cold chain but if anyone can do it, Pfizer can do it. Um, The other vaccines, if the trials are successful, will come online in due course. And we need to carry on with the trials in the UK um, because we don't know that vaccine supply will be guaranteed and maintained. There could be a problem with one of the plants. We don't know which of the vaccines will give us better, most prolonged immunity or be best for boosting or using uh, in the future. So uh, that's why the trials will carry on, though we will move very quickly and there's documentation being agreed with the chief medical officer and mhra and the ethics committees as we speak <clears throat> we will move quite quickly to not enrolling healthcare workers and uh, only doing the younger age groups because it will be five or six months before we get down to the the under 50s probably with the even with you guys working extremely hard uh, in the delivery campaign so i don't need to go through that so Three quick slides on the different vaccines that are currently being looked at by the MHRA. So Pfizer's now got a conditional license for deployment. And you've heard from Nigel, I'm sure, about the logistics side of the fact that this needs to be kept at minus 70 to 80 degrees. It can sit in a single fridge after it comes out for for up to five days, but it's very, what you can't do is put it in and out of the fridge. Um, Very good. Uh, observed efficacy in adults. There's about um, 22,000 people over the age of 16 who received the vaccine and another similar number who received placebo. They seem to have done about 512 to 15 year olds as well, but that data is not in the public domain and the license is for over 16s in the United Kingdom if you look at the MHRA paperwork that was released yesterday. There's no serious safety concerns, fatigue, headache, the other things we've mentioned before um, are the problem, but we would expect that efficacy to go down a bit over the year or the year of the, the whole year they're gonna be studying the participants <clears throat> because the antibody level will go down and at some point boosting will be needed. But nobody can tell us at this moment what that went on, how that will be. Similar numbers for Moderna, another RNA vaccine, Uh, different technology and that it's more stable and can be kept in the fridge rather than at minus 70. Um, Similar side effect profile, (coughs) similar age profile in their studies. Both of these vaccines seem to work in the older age groups as well um, uh, as in the younger. So the Oxford study has had confusing um, media over the last few um, weeks. Um, The Oxford study, just to remind you, is a a chimp adenovirus vector. So the adenovirus can't replicate in the body. It can't give people a cold, but the vector is designed to also stimulate uh, cellular immunity as well as the spike protein antigen that it displays to the immune system. And so we what's been reported is, is two very different efficacy figures. Um, one at 62% for the whole uh, for the for the for one dose regime, which was high dose high dose, and one that was ninety percent for what was a low dose high dose, and the low dose high dose was a smaller group, I think about three thousand participants compared to the larger group who received the higher dose. Vaccines don't work in the same way that some medicines do with a, a standard dose response, so it's not just a question of giving a higher dose; you get better immunity at some point it's well known that you can go over the top and actually suppress your response if you give too much. And that's definitely true for the RNA vaccines as well. And so um, it's a bit of a punt. These are viral vectors. So the dosing is actually the number of virus particles in a a given amount of fluid. And it was, it was a best guess uh, at the time as the study was being delivered in April and May as to which one to go with. And the, inconsistency, the serendipitous press called it a mistake, it wasn't really a mistake, uh, that led to these two different groups being tested, was that the vaccine was being manufactured uh, a little bit in Oxford and by an Italian plant who were counting it in one way. And when AstraZeneca came on board to deal with the logistics of a a massive trial and then a global uh, deployment, Um, AstraZeneca scientists counted it in a slightly different way. And a decision was made to go with the low dose, with the high dose, high dose, just on the basis of the data that was available at that point. So we've ended up with these two different efficacy uh, efficacy dosing. And with the MHRA who've been looking at the data, they will be looking at a smaller group showing 90% and the bigger group showing 60% with overall 70%. At this moment in time, we have no idea whether the license or conditional license that will be offered, <clears throat> if the safety data is appropriate, will be the high dose, high dose or the low dose, high dose. And it will partly depend on data that is being submitted as we speak or next week, which is the antibody, the neutralizing antibody assay uh, that will uh, be available um, uh, from the two different groups. If there's biological plausibility for the 90%, the low dose, high dose, i.e. if the neutralizing antibody turns out to be much higher in the one, do- one group than the other, then it might be the regulator will say to, for us to use a low dose, high dose in the NHS, but it might be that they say that we're going to go with the higher dose, higher dose, despite the, low, the lower headline number, um, because uh, that's where they've got most safety data. We just don't know at this point. Um, the other thing to say about the Oxford, uh, there's two other really important points about the Oxford uh, data and why it's actually a really exciting result, just like the Pfizer and Moderna ones, even if it looks worse, is that, that first of all, nobody got serious severe COVID in, in this trial either. So the vaccine seems to stop, ind- it does protect individuals. The criteria for calling COVID COVID was was quite soft. We didn't just pick severe COVID for this disease and we will need to look at the papers and the criteria side by side for all the different studies because they're all a bit different. But people who had mild symptoms were called for symptomatic visits in the Oxford study. So um, it might be that we've got a group of milder patients and therefore the headline efficacy is less. In the Oxford trial it might not be it could be that those are those are real and directly comparable but at the moment we don't know that the three trials are di- directly comparable with that with those headline figures and the other really exciting thing about the Oxford study compared to what we know at the moment about Pfizer and Moderna is that um, in the Oxford study all participants had a weekly swab um, whereby we know that the, there is a signal, um, we don't know how big it is, but we know already that there's a signal that the Oxford vaccine might stop transmission. It might stop asymptomatic carriage as well as severe COVID disease. All of which means we should, um, we should still be really encouraged that the Oxford AZ vaccine, if it's licensed by the MHRA, will be a safe and effective thing to do. And we should be encouraging people to have any of the vaccines. So I've told you about the clinical trials. Children's studies and pregnant women will start in uh, uh, January, February with with Pfizer, Janssen and uh, Oxford vaccine. It's really important we do the pregnancy studies. They're not licensed. The MHRA have specifically said not for pregnant women at this point in time. And the only 16, 17-year-olds who can be vaccinated uh, according to PHE and JCVI at the moment are those who are working in Healthcare environments. So if we're if they're working in hospitals or in your clinic, your practices, we are immunising uh, 16, 17 year olds with frontline healthcare workers. And public confidence is really important that we get the messaging right. There's, there's there's a lot of noise at the moment, and the media were behaving really well with hesitancy up till this week, and now they're giving a bit of oxygen again to the people who are, are, are saying, oh, well, has it all been too quick? And actually, it hasn't been too quick. All the science has been done properly. Um, the UK's historically been really, really good at handling special events or adverse events that have happened. Um, if you're vaccinating somebody, whether it was the, the, the teenager who had a fainting episode on the first day of the cervical cancer program or the narcolepsy and pandemic story, um, it was handled really well. and didn't affect uh, public confidence. Um, and we're really hoping that, that, you know, by doing this sort of talk and getting everybody together, we can convince you, um, the people who are going to be giving the vaccine, that it's a really good thing and that, that really all of the vaccines are going to be safe and effective if the MHRA have awarded that licence for us to deploy. A- and, you know, there's a choice governments are going to have to make about whether to regulate social media, whether we make vaccine compulsory or not is, 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 you know, it's always debated. It's very likely to be detrimental if we did that in the UK public opinion has never been for that, but whether that'll happen for healthcare workers is interesting. And it, and it does appear that the hospitality industry are, are actually wanting it to happen, Though they need, they need to be careful because it, it, most people under 50 aren't going to be immunized until much later in next year. So you've probably gone through these bits, um, Nigel. The the provisional ranking uh, is going to be updated a bit next week, particularly these clinically extremely vulnerable individuals. Um, We know that that's already been revised by JCVI and it's going through Chief Medical Officer and Public Health England at the moment. And the green book's going to be updated. So we will find out whether that might include things like immunising people's families at all ages if there's a vulnerable member, or somebody with, a, with an immune suppressed disease. We don't know the detail yet, but it should come next week, if not this week. And frontline workers is all of us, including our, our ward clerks, our receptionists, our porters, cleaners, our lab staff, anybody in healthcare is treated as frontline healthcare worker when it comes to the first round. And I'll, I'll stop there, uh, Nigel, that's my last slide. Um, any deployed vaccines gonna be fully evaluated The uncertainties are not about safety, and we should be absolutely clear with our our patients and the public about this. The uncertainties are about long-term immunity, how often they should be given, and whether they will work as well in the different groups like the elderly, immune-suppressed children, pregnant women, and so on. So please take the
1: first vaccine offered to you. I will be. And I will as well. (laughs) So um, we're going to be running out of time soon. Gareth, have you picked any key questions out of the question box you think we should... We, we will get answers to all of them and um, either discuss them on another webinar next week or do a recording that everybody's available. But were there any key questions that you sort of stuck out to you? That-
3: yeah, I think there's still a lot, quite a bit of confusion about the payments and about how if, if patients are going to different centres for vaccines, how this will, aflo- the, how this will affect the, the flow of money. So I think we need to pick that up and be, try and get to the bottom of that. I still think it's quite confused. Um, and then a technical question for Saul, which is quite interesting: Is is the spike protein made only in the muscle the vaccine is injected into, or more widely around the body? Um, we uh, can you still hear me? Yeah, yeah. So, so it is it is designed to work in the so it's injected into the muscle. It can't. It just doesn't last long. It's it's, it's mRNA. It just disappears. It can't get anywhere else. Yeah, and I think I addressed the the the, the differences between Pfizer and AstraZeneca. Efficacy. When I was talking yeah. about the Oxford vaccine,
1: yeah. yeah, I think I think that's a key message we need to get out to the public so that people don't say, "Oh, I prefer to have the other one because it's better because it's uh, it's more effective than this." Yeah,
3: one. I, I think from an individual, that's a that's a, we can safely so, or assuming the MHRA do the same thing and offer the same license, and we will be able to say in exactly the same way, there's been no severe disease in the Oxford trial or the others and that the headline figures don't indicate necessarily that one's better than the other. In fact, the Oxford one might generate longer lasting immunity. We just don't know. So don't don't let that be a
1: decision-making point. Can I thank all our speakers? I'm really grateful for you all uh, giving up your time to come on uh, and talk to us. And again, I'll reiterate, we will go through these and answer everybody's questions and make sure they become available, um, hopefully early next week. Thanks very much, um, and thanks for the team at the office for all you're doing to support these webinars. Thanks very much, everybody. Take care.
0: Wessex LMC's supporting you and your practice.